Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Nahum. The Old Testament book of Nahum, yes, that is an actual book of the Bible. It's found in what is called the Minor Prophets section. And we've already given a quick start to the book of Nahum this last Sunday. And now we're going to see a little bit more about what God has to say concerning the city of Nineveh. And so we find our way to the book of Nahum, the book of Nahum chapter number 2. Of course, this book is about the city of Nineveh, but it is not written to the city of Nineveh, meaning that this is giving a glimpse of the future to the people of God who are being harassed by the Assyrians, but it gives a prophecy concerning what's going to happen to the Ninevites. And so with that, turn with me to the book of Nahum, chapter number 2. The book of Nahum, chapter number 2, and notice with me in verse number 1. He that dasheth in pieces is come up before thy face. Keep the munition, watch the way, make thy loins strong, fortify thy power mightily. For the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches. The shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariot shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation. And the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. The chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broadways. They seem, they shall seem like torches. They shall run like light, the lightning. He shall recount his worthies. They shall stumble in their walk. They shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. The gates of the river shall be open, and the palace shall be dissolved. And Hazab shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and her maid shall lead her as with a voice of doves tambouring upon the breast. But Nineveh is of old like a pool of water. Yet they shall flee away. Stand, stand, they shall cry. But none shall look back. Take ye the spoil of silver. Take the spoil of gold. For there is none end of the store and the glory out of all the pleasant furniture. She is empty and void and waste. And the heart melteth and the knees smite together. And much pain is in all loins, and the faces of them gather blackness. Where is the dwelling place of the lions, and the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion, even the old lion, walked, and the lions whelp, and none made them afraid? The lion did tear in pieces enough for its whelp, and the strangled for his <coughs> strangled for his lionesses, and filled with holes the prey in his dens with revan. Behold, I am 
against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. And I will burn her chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour thy young lions, and I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a frightening phrase that we find in the book of Nahum chapter number two? The book of Nahum chapter number two, and notice with me the very last verse, verse number 13. Behold, I am against thee. Behold, I am against thee. And of course, we know that Nineveh is the audience here. Behold, I am against thee, Nineveh. And with the Lord's help, we want to see this prophetic passage here. It's now our history, but we want to see this prophetic passage as it was given to the people as a source of an encouragement of what God was going to do. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And now as we account this, I'm asking that we would be clear in our history, understanding what occurred but Lord, through it all, we could see the message that you were delivering to your people throughout this prophecy of the destruction of Nineveh. I'm asking that we would learn more about you and that we would respond to you properly. Again, I don't trust myself, my own mind, my own thoughts. A lot of things have been going on, a lot of things being dealt with. But Lord, I can trust you. So the best I know how, I surrender myself to you and ask that you fill me with your precious spirit. And we love you, Lord. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as we go through the book of Nahum, we are, of course, studying the city of Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And thus, in order for us to quite understand the importance of this prophecy and what is going on, there is some history that we also have to understand. And so the first thing I'd like to bring to your attention is the history of Nineveh. The history of Nineveh. Now, of course, Nineveh is an ancient city. And if you don't mind, turn with me to your Bibles to the book of Genesis. All the way to the beginning, the book of Genesis. And turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 10. <clears throat> now, of course, to catch us up in the book of Genesis... Of course, we'd had a man by the name of Adam and by the name of Eve. And of course, Adam and Eve, they had children. They had one by the name of Cain who killed his brother. And then you had another son by the name of Seth. Well, as the Bible goes on in early Genesis, you had God's line of Seth. And you had the world's line, man's line of Cain. And they were separate for a while until they mixed and there was no separation left. And so what happened is everyone did evil continually. And uh, <clears throat> eventually God said, I'm done with this. And so he told a righteous man by the name of Moa, Noah that I'm going to send water from the sky. It had never rained before. And so I want you to build an ark. What's an ark? Well, it's a big boat. Okay. And for 120 years, Noah built an ark according to God's specifications. And so, could you imagine for 120 years, people would say, what you doing, Mr. Noah? Well, I'm building an ark. What's an ark? I'm building a boat. Why are you building a boat against a mountain? Well, because one day, water is going to come from the sky, and it's going to flood the earth. Could you imagine if that had never happened before, what a laughingstock he would be? But for 120 years, 
Noah was faithful. And we're glad he was because Noah and his three sons and their three wives and Noah's wife all entered into the boat, all eight of them, along with animals that God had prepared. And then afterwards, they stayed on the boat for a year after raining for 40 days and 40 nights, flooding the earth. And when they got out, God gave them the instructions to go out and spread, multiply, replenish the earth. And so they did. Of course, Noah had three sons by the name of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Well, of course, they would have children and they continued to multiply. But it was interesting that one of those sons by the name of Ham decided or had a very interesting lineage. Ham had a son by the name of Cush. Cush had another son who we now find in the book of Genesis chapter number 10. The book of Genesis chapter number 10. And for context sake, let's go ahead and start at verse number 6. As we see this lineage of Ham as they got off the boat. Verse number 6, Genesis 10, 6. And the sons of Ham, Ham Cush and Mizram and Put and Canaan. And the sons of Cush, Seba and Havilah and Sabata and Ramah and Sabathaka. And the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod. Notice this man, Nimrod. And he began a, to be a mighty one in the earth. Now, we're not going to spend time on Nimrod as much as I would love to. But outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is probably no more influential person in all of history than Nimrod. Even today, we feel the effects of Nimrod and the things that he had set up back in Genesis chapter number 10. But one thing that affects our reading in the book of Nahum of what Nimrod did as we see on in verse number 9, and he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his, that's Nimrod's kingdom, was Babel and Eric and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And out of that land went forth Asher, which we are now going to know as the Assyrians, and builded Nineveh, and the city of Reboth and Kalna, and resin between Nineveh and Kalna, and the same as that great city. And of course, Nimrod is going to establish the first world empire. And he's going to put in the seedbed of what we now call the Assyrian Empire. Now the Assyrian Empire is actually going to span for 700 years. That's a long time. That is a pretty ancient world empire to last 700 years. Now it would be gain and flow after uh, God had destroyed the Tower of Babel. Of course, that first uh, start of a world empire scattered as the languages were confused and the people were scattered. But these cities remain. And as history went on, that they didn't start off as, start off as empires, but they start off as what we called city-states. They would have a city that would have control of a region around it. Well, again, as history would go on, these cities would begin to form alliances and they would form into kingdoms and eventually they would spread into empires. By the 14th and 13th centuries BC, the Assyrian Empire began to rise in power. They reached their heights in the 8th and 7th century BC, making Nineveh their capital. Now, Nineveh 
symbol was a cuneiform, that's a wedge-shaped writing that they had in the ancient world, of a fish surrounded by an enclosure. Now these people began to be known as the Nazis of the ancient world. They began to wreak havoc all across what we would call the Middle East area as they began to take over. And of course you've heard me describe how awful they are. And by the way, I haven't even told you the half of it. And you could research it for yourself. You say, how evil were they? Well, there was one king who decided to take his political enemy and kill him, hang his body across, over a tree and let it dangle, and then made his widow have dinner underneath the body of her husband. That was the good king, by the way. They got more evil than that. You understand, they were called the Nazis of the ancient world. And that just wasn't a moniker. That was a description of how awful they were. Such things as throwing up babies in the airs so that way their archers could have target practice to shoot them. They were known as filleting people alive. What does that mean? They would take people while they were still alive, put them on hooks, take a knife and peel their flesh off of them. And by the way, that was the good kings. I can't tell you what happened to the bad kings and what they would do. They were truly an evil empire, ruling for 700 years, destroying towns, destroying entire nations, deporting entire populations from one place to another. Which now brings us <coughs> to the second thing I want to show you, the warning to Nineveh. The warning to Nineveh. Now God decided out of his goodness and grace to send the prophet Jonah to go give a warning to Nineveh for the purpose that they would repent. Now this is important because the book of Nahum is not written to the city of Nineveh. Remember that God never gives prophecy for the purpose of satisfying behavior. Why did God send Jonah? It wasn't to condemn the people, period. It was so that way they would repent and turn to the Lord. That's what Bible preaching is supposed to do. Is that there's supposed to be an action. There is supposed to be something to be done because of that preaching. Well, God sent Jonah there. Even though Jonah wasn't willing, God had to drag him kicking and screaming to the city of Nineveh to finally say, listen, in 40 days, God's going to destroy this place knowing that God was slow of anger, knowing that God would do everything he could with his spirit to draw all men near and half a million people within the city of Nineveh accepted Christ or accepted God's promises of salvation. We'll see those people of Nineveh in heaven. Can you imagine that? Well, the revival didn't last long. They got saved and that was it. They made no decision to follow after the Lord. And so time marched on. Because they refused to turn completely back to God, God's now sending a new message found in the book of Nahum of complete and utter destruction. Which now brings us to the heart of where we're at. The destruction of Nineveh. Notice with me now as we walk through the book of Nahum chapter number 2. And let's see this destruction of Nineveh. Notice with me in verse 2. For the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out. And have marred their vine branches. Notice that phrase. The emptiers have emptied them out. God is giving a description of the Ninevites. You know what they were? They emptied out entire nations. 
they would go and rob their treasuries and take everything. So there was nothing left in the bank. There was nothing left in anything personal funds. But what God is speaking here is that he had used Nineveh. He used the Assyrians. Notice, for the Lord had turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel. We would know that the Assyrians would destroy the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. Now, God is always gracious, and what, when he gets, uses a rod to chasten his people, when he uses them to take them out back and the woodshed and take care of business, then God would take the rod and he would break the rod because it was used to whip his children. And God is speaking about this in the book of Nahum, that I use them for my purpose to discipline my children, but I'm, when I'm done with this rod, I'm going to break it. And I'm going to break it completely. It's not going to come back. Notice in verse number 3 and 4. The shield of his mighty men is red. And the valiant men are in scarlet. The chariot shall be with flaming torches. In the day of his preparation. And the fir tree shall be terribly shaken. The chariot shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. Here it's talking about the battle siege. What is happening outside the gates of of Nineveh in this account is that the people have gathered together to fight against them. Now Babylon was inside of the Assyrian Empire. It was considered a holy righteous city. Not a battle city, but a holy site. It'd be a place where people would go and worship different gods. But the Babylonians gathered together and they said, listen, we're no longer part of the Assyrian Empire. We're now our own peoples. They gathered the Medians, who was going to be the future Persian Empire, and they joined together and began to fight against the Assyrian Empire. Now, I know this is history, but we're leading somewhere. Now, what's happening is that all of these people are now outside of the gates of Nineveh, and they're preparing the battle, and they're beginning something called a siege. Now, in the ancient world, the best way to win a battle is by waiting them out. What you would do is you would encircle a city and not allow any more deliveries to come in. You wouldn't allow... Um, food to come in. No more Walmart trucks. No more quick trip. No more gas car, uh, tankers inside. You would make it so that way they would have to live of what they would have inside of the city. Now, the problem was is that Nineveh was a pretty big city. And they had their own farms. They had aqueducts. They had water. They were willing to wait this out. And so the wait began. And the armies on the outside were waiting them out preparing to see what was going to happen. Notice as we go on in verse number 5. And he, this is talking about the leader of Nineveh, shall recount his worthies. The worthies here is his generals and his advisors. And so as they start to see all of the, the enemies now of the Babylonians and the Medes joining together with other nations gathering around outside. He gathers his generals and advisors and say, maybe we should go inside of the defensive wall, the inner wall. We're going to go where there's more protection right now. Uh, he, they shall recount his worthies. They shall stumble in their walk. They shall make haste to the wall thereof and the defense they shall be prepared. Now, these defensive walls stood 60 feet high and were wide enough to allow three four horse-drawn chariots to go around. They had 1,500 
towers going alongside the wall. And several of these towers were so big, they would be equivalent to the Eiffel Tower in Paris or Big Ben in London. They were huge fortress towers. This was a wall that you would look at it and go, wow. And so again, the general and the king would go inside of these walls and say, listen, nothing can tear down these walls. Nothing can destroy them. We're safe. We'll wait them out. Can you imagine a wall so thick, 60 feet thick and so tall that its towers, 1,500 of them would be towards the sky. And again, if you've never been to the Eiffel Tower, if you've never seen Big Ben, they're pretty big structures. And to have, those were the tower sizes. Again, the ancient world, they were not messing around how big they were. Notice as it goes on, verse number six, and the gates of the river shall be open and the palace shall be dissolved. As it's going on, the Assyrians were confident in their ability about holding out a siege. They had moats, they had towers, they had water. A, a tributary canal from the Tigris River ran through the city, so they had plenty of water. They thought they could stand against any human army. But the one thing they could not stand against was an almighty God. And so what God did as they had the Babylonians outside the gates and they had the Medes, the future Persians waiting outside of the gates, that God sent a huge storm and a huge flood. And the Tigris River broke through these walls and just erupted and eroded them away. They just fell like nothing. And knock down the walls. The soldiers of course were frightened. And <laughs> at about what was going on. Where the Medes and Persians begin to go in. Now the Assyrian king at this time. Had heard that a prophecy. That if the waters were going to wash away the walls. And he laughed. But he said as soon as they washed away the walls. You were going to die. And so when the water began to wash away the, the walls, or, and he says, I better do something. I'm not going to stick around to die. I'm going to flee. So he took his wives and he took his concubines and he took his children and they fled the palace. And as they fled the palace, he set this huge palace on fire and took off. Now, as he set the palace on fire, it began to catch on fire to the rest of the district. Now you have the flood that has wiped away the walls. Then you had the palace, which began to catch on fire and spread throughout it. And the fire began to destroy everything. So you had fire destroying it. You had water destroying it. They were fleeing in the chaos. Notice as it goes on. Verse number uh, eight. But Nineveh is of old like a pool of water. Yet they shall flee away. Stand, stand, they cry. But none shall look back. Notice in verse number nine. Take ye the spoil of silver and take the spoil of gold. For there is none end of the store and the glory out of the pleasant furniture. Now in verse nine, it's saying, oh, look at all these soldiers. The Babylonians come in. The Medes come in. They break through the walls as the water had washed through. They pour through the walls. Now Nineveh for 700 years has robbed every country. In fact, as you go through the 
through the uh, Bible, you'll find there are times that the Judean kings, including King Hezekiah, paid off the Assyrians to leave them alone. You would find the Israelite kings of the northern kingdom very much paid the Assyrians to leave them alone. And if not, that wasn't good enough, the Assyrians would actually come and take the stuff from them. And so they had storehouses of other people's treasure, of other people's finances, of other people's money. And now those storehouses are unguarded. People are running for their lives. The king's not worried about gold. He's worried about his own life. Verse number 10, she is empty and void and waste. And the heart melteth, and the knees shall smite together, and much pain is in the loins, and the faces of them that gather blackness. So those storehouses in verse 9 are emptied out, and there's nothing left. Nineveh is completely destroyed. By the way, this prophecy in Nahum is given before Israel falls. The event of what's happening is recorded in 612 BC. And so this is given years before it happened, and it happened. They got cleaned out. The water rushed it away. Again, the Bible talks about it in verse 1 that the, it was going to be destroyed with water. And ver, and, or in chapter 1, it was going to be destroyed by water. In chapter 2, it said it was going to be destroyed by water. Between the fire, between the water, between the pillaging, Nineveh was so completely ransacked that there was nothing left. It was completely destroyed that nobody else would go and re-inhabit it. It got buried in the sands of time. That even Alexander and his troops in 332, 331 BC walked right by it and didn't even know it was there. Later on, Napoleon, when he walked around his troops in 1803... Uh, in his great grand army, Napoleon walked over the ruins, didn't even know it was there. It wasn't until 1842 that the city was rediscovered and started to be excavated. And when they excavated it, they excavated the walls and the towers and they saw some of the destruction. So when I'm giving you these stats, these are reaffirmed by history and not just legend. You say, well, this is good. This is great. So what? And that's a good question too. We've covered a lot of the history, but now let me remind you what the purpose of this was. That God did not give Nahum to give to the Ninevites. They were already going to be destroyed. There was no repentance. Then who are these people being addressed? Well, what's going to happen after 722 BC is that in 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel is going to be destroyed. Then the Assyrian war machine is going to move down and take all the cities and villages of Judea, the southern kingdom, and they're going to come and surround Jerusalem. And when they're surrounding Jerusalem, they are going to start to plan to destroy this city too. And Nahum is given to those people like Hezekiah, like Isaiah, who are in the city at this time to give them hope. Hold your finger here, but let's look at the historical account of what's going to happen in the book of 2 Kings 18. The book of 2 Kings 18, and we're going to apply it as we see how it's applied in future. Now remember, 
Nahum is given before the events of 2 Kings 18. It is predicting the events of 2 Kings 18. And so now when 2 Kings 18 hits, it's given as a message of hope in the midst of hopelessness. In the book of 2 Kings 18, what has happened is that the Assyrians have surrounded the... um, excuse me, have a sur- surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And notice now, as they begin to uh, talk to the people of the city, in verse 19, and Rabshakeh said unto them, meaning the people up on the wall and surrounding the, the troops of Hezekiah, speak ye now to Hezekiah. Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this wherein thou trustest. Thou sayest, but they are vain words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? Now behold, thou trustest upon the staff of this bruised reed, even upon Egypt, on which a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So was the Pharaoh king of Egypt unto them that trust in him. But if you say unto me, we trust in the Lord our God. Is not he whose high places and the altars Hezekiah taken away? And he that to Judah and Jerusalem, ye shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Now he goes on and he's saying, listen, who are you going to trust in? You don't have anyone to trust in. Your situation is hopeless. But maybe it doesn't have to be hopeless. We'll give you riders. You know what? We'll give you land. Somewhere else, it's just like your land here. Don't worry. You trust me. I know the situation seems black. And I know that you don't really want to trust me. But, you know, we're, we're the best you have. We're the best option you have. Now, if the Assyrian army is the best option you have, you don't have very good options. Let me tell you that we're often under attack. We have the world, the flesh, the devil, and all three of them are attacking We have things that are normal in life. Maybe it's finances. And you look at finances and the finances scream at you like, who are you going to trust in? How are you going to get accomplished? It's impossible. You're going to have to find some way out. And I know you may not like it, but you know what? There's an evil path, but you can go ahead and take it and you go ahead and trust it. You know what? We'll give you another option. Maybe it's physical health. Maybe your physical health's at a place where you say, there's no hope for it. There's no recovery for it. There's no way. And the world wants to tell you, listen, you're in a hopeless situation. You're just stuck. It's just over for you. We might throw you a bone or something, but you know, you're pretty hopeless. Maybe it's the idea that you have some family issue and you look at them and say, there's no hope. There's no way of recovery. There's nothing they could do. And the world wants you to offer and offers you a horrible solution. But you feel like taking it because you feel like it's your only solution you got left. And you want to surrender to the enemy that's around you. And the enemy is just saying you have no one to trust to. You're an impossible situation. It gets worse, those voices. Verse 28. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and spake, saying, Hear the word of the great king. 
not God, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying of the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of Assyria. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, make an agreement with me by a present Come out to me, and then eat every man of his own vine and every one of his fig tree, and drink every one of the waters of the cistern. So here's the voices that come. You're in a place where it looks impossible. You're in a place where the voices are loud, and you look with your own logic, and you can't figure a way out. You plan, you connive, you scheme. And it doesn't work. Your words of trying to fix the situation do not work. Your way, the doctors, the financials, the other counselors, they don't give you options. And the one option they give you, if you could forgive the term, is like a deal with the devil. It's not a good option at all, but they tell you it's the only option you have. Take this option! Don't trust in God! They'll laugh at you and say, you go to church. You know, all you're going to do at church is hear a fairy tale. Don't let that preacher lie to you and say, trust in God. What does that even mean? And so people show up to church and they hear a message of trusting God, believe in the apostle, possible. They walk out those doors and go face the impossible again. And they said, really? Does it prayer really work? It doesn't seem to be working. It doesn't seem like my situation's better. It doesn't seem like anything's working out. Do I give up? Do I take the bad deal? That's the fight that people find themselves in. The fight where you have the impossible. Remember the Assyrian army? No civilization has stopped them yet. They even ran over Israel like it was nothing. You have no backup. They even make fun of it. Egypt. Don't even think about trusting Egypt. Trusting in Egypt's like leaning on a cane that's ready to snap. It's not going to hold your weight. It's not something you hold on to. You have no options. Just give up. Don't let someone fool you and say trust God. But let me tell you what the solution is. Trust God. Amen. Trust God. You said, but you don't understand how impossible my situation is. You don't understand how big God truly is. God is the God of the impossible. God is a God that's bigger than anything you will ever face. You ever wonder why situations look so big to you? Because you're not looking at God. If you're looking at God, anything you are facing is so small in comparison. The problem is we keep looking at that situation because it's right there in front of our face. Have you ever thought about how big the sun is? It doesn't look that big. I could block out the sun with my hand. But you know that sun is huge? But if I keep looking at my hand, it looks like God's, that sun's so far away. My hand, it's right there. It's what I've got to deal with. That's how we look at our problems so often. 
And because we keep our eyes on our problems, our situations, our enemies, our battlements, we're defeated. And then when they finally offer some solution, even if it's awful, we seem to be satisfied with it. What is the solution? The one thing that the enemy's telling you not to do. Trust in the Lord. So what happened? Well, we know in the book of 2 Kings chapter 19, Hezekiah and Isaiah had a prayer meeting. And they invited everybody they possibly could. They even took the written transcripts of what Rabshakeh was saying. And they nailed it down and said, God, this is what the enemy is saying. This is what the enemy is offering. This is what the enemy is claiming. God, you're bigger than this. You're bigger than this. You know, that would be a good practice when we're in the impossible situation. To take it and lay it out before God. This is the situation I'm in. You see it. And you're bigger than this. We need to not let the enemy dictate terms. We have to look at our God and realize he is able. And God is able. And of course, they prayed and they prayed and God gave promises. But notice with me at the end of 2 Kings 19. God gave an answer in verse 32. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it against it with a shield, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and shall not come into this city. Thus saith the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and my servants David. Now let me pause there. You say, well, God's promising against the city. And the city he put his name in. Well, guess what else he put his name in? Anyone who accepted Christ as your Savior. That's why you call yourself a Christian. You're bearing the name of God. He lives within you. Don't you think he's more concerned of you than piece of property? He is. You are considered one of his children. And for his name's sake, he is willing to do the impossible. Notice as we see some more what happens. Verse 35, and it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred, four score, and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. You understood Man did not accomplish that. When we face things in our life, we have one or two choices of facing it. We either face it by force or we face it by faith. That's how you live your life, by force or by faith. What do you mean by force? By force means you manipulate, you scheme, you connive, you plan, you figure out for yourself to make it work. When you live by faith, you look at God and say, God, I'm trusting you. You tell me what to do and I'll be obedient. You get this accomplished. You live your life one or two ways, by force or by faith. And the faith life is the best life. 
You know, the faith life is a life where you can joy in God. Where you can have peace no matter what the circumstances are. Because I trust him. When you live your life by force, you live an anxious, worried life. You're always worried about this. And you're worried about this. And how am I going to get this to work? And what if this doesn't work out? And then you start borrowing from tomorrow's problems. And then I, I know I'm going to get it to work. I can force it in. Of course, many people are familiar with the kid's toy. <laughs> they need to teach this more to teach people how to fit things in. But do you know that you could fit a circle in a square peg? Now, it doesn't go in easy, but you could make it happen with enough force. So if I found a square hole, it doesn't go in naturally, but I can make it happen, force it in there. That's how most of us live our life. I can make it work. I'm going to force it to happen. If I say this thing to the person, I know this one statement, this is going to be it. Finally, this one statement, I'm going to say it. The light bulb's going to come on. He's going to revolutionize his life. He's going to be good forever. It does not work that way. I know if I go explain to the boss what happened and, and I throw this other person under the bus, I could get out of trouble. That's living your life by force. You know what? I could go talk to Uncle Sam and, or Uncle Bob. Let's not do Uncle Sam. Uncle Bob and, you know, he's got extra money. And if I just call him up and, you know, and I sound really nice, he might remember his very favorite uh, nephew. And maybe, you know, I'll see a check in the mail. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been that desperate? Where you start making deals or showing up for doing something, hoping that maybe this will be the thing that unlocks it. Maybe this is the thing here. I know, I know we're going to go on a special trip together. And, and he's going to see this moonlight. And he's going to see the waves. And all of a sudden his heart's going to grow bigger three times that day. It doesn't work that way. Our plans and our schemes and our efforts fall short. And we're stuck with an impossible situation. And sometimes it becomes even more impossible. Because we were the ones doing it. We were the ones looking for a solution. We were trying to make things happen. When the solution is what they do not want you to do. Trust God. Turn back with me to the book of Nahum, chapter number one. And I want to show you the message of Nahum. You said the message of Nahum is the destruction of Nineveh. Yes, but it's not addressed to the Ninevites. It's about Nineveh, but it's addressed to a people who are surrounded by a hopeless situation. But above them is a God who could do everything. What is the message of Nahum? What was the message that Nahum was written before Hezekiah and, and Isaiah were surrounded? It was written to them for this purpose. Nahum chapter 1 verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. He knoweth them that trust in him. You know, it's one thing to say, I trust God. 
It's another thing to really trust God. It's one thing to say, I trust God while you're hammering the circle thing into the, to the <laughs> square hole. It's another thing to take your hands off. Not my problem no more, yours. You just tell me what to do and I'll do it. That's what it means to trust God. Hands off. You know that's so hard? Because we like to put our hands on it. We want to fix it. We feel like we've got to fix it. You know what happened to Hezekiah and Isaiah? They realized they could do nothing. And when they finally realized they could do nothing, they prayed. Isn't it funny that prayer is usually the last thing we do? I mean, sure, we say little token prayers. But when we really get a hold of God for the impossible, it's when we have no other choice and nothing else has worked out. God knoweth who trusteth in him. So which brings me back to what I was talking about earlier. What is the impossible situation you are praying through? What is that impossible prayer that it does not work out and <laughs> there's no solution and the, all the world, the flesh, and the devil can offer you is an awful solution? A compromised solution. One that's not going to make things better in the long run. Can you trust in God for that situation? Almost every single person in here, I could almost point to you and say, this is one of your impossible. Now, you may have something I don't even know about. But let me tell you, I don't need to know about it. But God knows those who trust in him. Can you take your hands off of it? Can you stop fighting and manipulating and trying to make it work? And say, God, yours. Help me to keep my hands off of it. Help me to keep my eyes on you and not on my situation. Help me to look past the circumstances and see the God of the circumstances. Help me to see you high, holy, lifted up. Let me see you so big that this small problem to me, is, it looks small because it is small next to you. We have to go back to God for the impossible. God knows them that trust in him. What I want you to do tonight is I want you to spread out those papers, spread out the situation before God. And I want you to plead with God and say, God, you take care of this. You fight this battle. You take care of this enemy. You deal with this impossible situation. You change this thing. I'm taking my hands off, realizing there's nothing I can do. Just tell me what to do and I'll be obedient. That's part of trusting in God. If you won't do what God tells you to do, you're not trusting in him. That's part of the deal. God, you just tell me what to do and I'll do it. I'll trust you with that situation. God knoweth them that trust in him. Make it so that way, if you say, God, I'm trusting in you, that he looks down and says, I know you are. 
Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.